welcome to The Shadow of the Valley, the show that explores how technology disrupts society. I'm your host, Tal Leeds. Join me as we navigate our rapidly shifting technological landscape. Together, we'll explore key concepts and seek clear insights. Join us as we cut through the distractions to find solutions to some of our toughest challenges. Our guest this episode is Charlie Burgoyne. Charlie is the founder and CEO of Valkyrie Intelligence, a data science, artificial intelligence, and machine learning firm based in Austin, Texas. Valkyrie wields its expertise in applied physics, advanced mathematics, and machine learning to solve complex business problems for their clients. Artificial intelligence and its narrow applications is going to really disrupt a lot of roles. But I think that we have a lot of incentive to figure out how your average human can adapt to those new roles. Together, we'll get a more technical look at the current state of artificial intelligence. We'll look at what it is and what it isn't, how it works, whether or not it'll take your job, and the ethical implications it presents. Are we ready for the ways AI will disrupt society? We'll find out. Let's begin. HAL 9000, C-3PO, The Terminator, Ava from Ex Machina, or Data from Star Trek, TARS and CASE from Interstellar. These are usually what we think of when we think of artificial intelligence. These are examples of what we call general artificial intelligence. Though certainly not human, a general artificial intelligence thinks and communicates in a way that is similar to a human. It can learn and do lots of things, not just a single repetitive or limited task. Its intelligence is seemingly superhuman, threatening to replace or overtake us in some instances. But for now, these are still strictly science fiction. What we do have now is what's called narrow AI. Think of Deep Blue, which is the chess-playing computer that beat Garry Kasparov or Watson, the Jeopardy-playing computer that beat Ken Jennings, or AlphaGo, the Go-playing computer that beat Grandmaster Lee Sedol. These are hyper-complex collections of matrices and algorithms designed to perform very specific operations with well-defined goals and desired outcomes, and it does this extremely well, better than humans can do it. But for all their power and utility, there are still some very important weaknesses and shortcomings. Allow me to illustrate. Let's say you took a three-year-old child and you showed them picture after picture of cats. Each time you showed the child the picture, you would say, cat, four legs, cat eyes, whiskers, paws, fur, claws, tail, all parts of a cat. After a number of these sessions, the child would soon identify cats everywhere. Look, mommy, there's a kitty cat. Well, using the process of machine learning, AIs learn in a similar way, only they need thousands upon thousands of examples before this sinks in and it can respond correctly. That is, most of the time. See, there's a stark difference between machine learning and human learning. And this becomes clear when you present both the child and the AI with a cat that's missing its tail. The three-year-old will look at it and say, Look, mama. There's a cat without a tail. But the AI will completely miss this cat altogether. This is because AIs have trouble understanding context and learning through analogy. Machine learning is a bit of a brute force method of learning. It takes a lot of examples and a lot of feedback from humans for a machine to learn right from wrong. Think of your Netflix suggestions, the ways that it generates pics for you based on your watching history. Having presented similar choices to other users over time, the algorithm has a record of which titles result in the most watched times and the highest ratings and feeds them to you. But as many have noticed, it doesn't always work the way it's supposed to. Every now and then we get strange suggestions that don't really make any sense, or a suggestion that seems unfair or biased based on its interpretation. That's one of the drawbacks of an intelligence that is so data-hungry. The data that goes into it 
could be biased or sabotaged. And because most of these systems are what we call a black box, we never get to see how the AI arrived at the decision or suggestion that it made. And the AIs themselves are not that good at identifying these causes either. AI is really good at correlations, finding patterns in the data. But those patterns are not necessarily meaningful. Uh, they're not necessarily the cause of the given situation. And because the amount of data it can actually collect from the real world is limited by the kind of data it can access or have put into it, the blind spots of programmers and the limitations of the hardware or media that it has access to limit the understanding of the AI itself. As a result of these shortcomings, narrow AI presents us with some serious moral dilemmas. Questions of accountability for the actions taken by AI, rules for their use in warfare, and how to deal with them when they have biased data all present problems that currently lack obvious solutions or desirable moral solutions. These are just some of the issues we understand about AI today, and even as we review these issues mentioned here, it isn't terribly hard to imagine some of the more precarious scenarios that would emerge out of these issues. Add to that the dogmas that remain in society about AI, or the way that media continues to misrepresent them, or a tendency amongst technologists to buy into the hype, and we have recipes for potential disaster. AI is undoubtedly powerful, which is exactly why we need to take it seriously and understand its weaknesses and nuances. Otherwise, we may really end up summoning the demon, after all, even with narrow AI. Our guest this episode is Charlie Burgoyne. Charlie is the founder and CEO of Valkyrie Intelligence, a data science, artificial intelligence, and machine learning firm based in Austin, Texas. Charlie has his master's in theoretical physics from Georgetown University and a bachelor's in astrophysics from George Washington University. I should note before we get started that our guest today is the second of two consecutive guests with a background in artificial intelligence. AI is one of the most potentially disruptive trends of the fourth industrial age. It's also one of the most misunderstood. Rather than trying to cram a lot of information into a single interview, I decided to simply cover the topic twice, at least for now, but from different angles. There may be some more episodes like this in the near future, so if you have any thoughts or feedback on the format, please reach out to me, either through the reviews or on Twitter, and let me know what you think. We are at Shadow Valley Pod over on Twitter, so come around, follow us, say hi. All right, we are here with Charlie Burgoyne of Valkyrie AI. Welcome, Charlie. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for being on the show. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, Valkyrie and what you guys do uh, for your clients. Yeah, we have a <clears throat> pretty special thing uh, that we're growing. Uh, we're a collection of strategists and scientists, uh, people with backgrounds in physics and mathematics, um, people with backgrounds in strategic thinking and, and strategy consulting. Mm -hmm. um, and then we have a wonderful complement of business operations folks, business development folks who uh, have come together kind of under a singular vision. Right? And that, that vision is to usher in a new era for industry. And it's not the same era that I think most people are talking about. Mm -hmm. right? um, we are certainly the most adept firm for AI and machine learning um, that that uh, that we we know of. Um, you know, we we have some really great competitors in in New England and um, in New York, but they they've been acquired in 2018. It's been busy in our field. Um, but what really sets us apart is that we are united around a vision of removing tedious uh, operations from somebody's daily life. We're optimizing for the human condition, um, and we're a real set on figuring out the right way for humans to be able to focus on intellectual pursuits, hmm. the things that they're naturally predisposed for creativity, um, and, uh, and innovation by removing the 
obstacles that get in their daily in the way of their daily life uh-huh so by design you have humans at the center mm-hmm. of the of the ai applications that you that you create i absolutely so you know all of the valkyrie programs are are different but at their core they have one thing in common which is we're working to understand the human condition um, the effects of that human condition on the ecosystems uh, through which we operate every day. Uh, and so when we craft machine learning capabilities, what we're really doing is we're minimizing the amount of time and energy that needs to get expounded to reach conclusions that are valuable. And we do that in processes, and we do that for products, we do that for, for people. Um, and our clients don't necessarily recognize it uh, as such because they're super deep in their domain, they're experts yeah. in their domain. Um, but if you abstract a little bit, um, when we help a bank cut their default rate in half, which we did back in February, mm-hmm. um, well, what we've really done is is outsourced the decision-making process um, or simplified the decision-making process right. for that bank so they can think about more interesting things like how do you grow um, your product portfolio for your customers or... Or how do you expand into new markets now that you're you're more sustainable? They don't recognize it. Right, yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, as understanding the human condition, but that's what we're doing. Right. So so there's there's two there's a twofold uh set of values that I'm hearing here. So there's uh one is just the, the basic AI be, uh being a tool for enhancing decision making. And number number two being um that it's made easy enough so that it's it's nearly invisible in the way that that mm-hmm. the that the that the end user is is using the, the product they, they almost don't notice that it's happening and it, it's the ui on it the user interface is so seamless that it doesn't seem like a big deal to the person using it I, I absolutely unequivocally um you know before we started today we were talking a little about star trek and what star trek got right you know yeah <laughs> what it got wrong and um, I think one thing that is particularly um, particularly appealing about science fiction from the future yeah. is that most folks aren't spending time filling out reports. Most <laughs> people aren't spending time reviewing <laughs> applications, right? Right. You don't they, see that in the you, show. You really don't, right? They're, <laughs> what they're doing is they're freely walking and thinking about intellectually complicated philosophical things yeah you know? yeah solid their science labs have these devices that take every kind of measurement and and uh and can perform all t- sorts of types of in- instrumentation um i think that's what star trek got right is that yeah. ai isn't here to you know without naming names it's not here to take over the planet we, we, <laughs> we're not at risk of an agi or an artificial right. generalized intelligence we're, we're truly not. The, the deeper yeah. I get in this field, the, le- the the less confidence I have um, in that even being tenable. Uh, but uh, but what we but but what it is bringing is a it's this liberating removal of tedium uh-huh. um, for the sake of our cognition and sentience. I mean, uh-huh. every everything that we we are and we're defined by as a species can potentially get unlocked by simply. Uh, unraveling the tedium of our daily lives. Yeah. Well, you had a, a couple of great things there. I'd love to just start sure. unpacking here. Um, so you mentioned the um, the general AI issue, mm-hmm. right? So let's just, uh, we did a little of this in the last episode, for, but for those who are just tuning into this ep- episode, let's go into that a little bit. What is a general AI and how is that, how is that the same or different than what most people think of as AI. Sure. So <clears throat> artificial intelligence, uh, particularly in the academic communities, is broken down into two different groups. Um, there's narrow AI, and then there's generalized AI, or AGI is usually how it's referred to. Mm-hmm. Narrow AI is the application of pattern recognition and knowledge engineering. We call it a Valkyrie, but it's really the manipulation of, of innocuous data to get mm-hmm. knowledge out of it, um, and then. But to, you also mentioned the pattern recognition. That that's a yeah. key point of it. That it's, it's just recognizing patterns. It's not necessarily knowing how significant the pattern is. It's just saying there is a pattern here. Exactly. Yeah. So that narrow AI um, is extremely precise for certain domains. 
And we're seeing a lot of exemplifications of that, right? When you get matched to your spouse, as I did on match.com, uh -huh. that's a great application of narrow AI, right? Um, when you get matched on, on uh, Amazon uh, to the right product, right. that's a great application of narrow AI. We see a lot of that too. So recommendations are huge for daily interaction. Mm -hmm. um, but some of the best data products that we interact with every, on a daily basis, I think Google Maps is certainly up there. Um, colleagues and I have talked about that for years as being a, a very powerful um, data product. Uh, it's extremely proficient at a couple of things, but it's not generally uh, intelligent. Right. AGI, on the other hand, is a completely different beast. In fact, I'm not even sure that the research that goes into one fits into the other. Mm -hmm. AGI is is really the the aspiration uh, to replicate the human condition within a digital or at least a non-organic context. Yeah. Um, so when you see movies like Ex Machina yeah. or um, uh, Space Odyssey or mm -hmm. you know Data on Star Trek, yeah. these are all these are all examples of AGI. Right. Um, and it's not domain specific. It's it has its own core motivations. It has its own core creativity. Mm -hmm. It draws on the impulses of others. There are all of these different systems that, um, topically, I think a lot of you know, people who are loud in our industry say are you know it's it's on its way. Um, but I think that that um, and not to be dismissive, it's a relatively pedantic understanding of what goes into intelligence. Yeah, we still can't really define intelligence. Yeah. Um, we can't, we, I can't actually, you know, if you asked me how a memory is formed, there are four concurrent <laughs> neuroscience based models of how a memory is actually formed. Right. Um, and in theory, a memory should be much easier than, uh, to understand than the cognitive impulses that make your, make up your decisions or right. your motivations. Right. But this kind of, but the, the fact that we can't replicate it in some sort of software kind of points to the fact that they are just a theory and there are certain, there are great limits to these theories in terms of where they'll actually overlap with the reality. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, we've, there's some people with fantastic marketing, um, the big four platform on the big four platforms. Yeah. Um, but they're meaning, meaning the big four being, uh, sorry, IBM, Google, yeah. yeah, Google, IBM, Amazon, and Microsoft. Uh huh. And I, the challenge is that they're talking about, um, AI in a way that's a little bit, um, it's a little bit of a mischaracterization to be honest. Yeah. Um, and the, the challenge is that we still haven't found a way of having, um, narrow AI bridge multiple domains with any form of autonomy. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm actually not even convinced that we can replicate, uh, intelligence within, within the digital context. I'm not sure we even have the right tools to frame yeah. it. That we might need a totally different set of tools before we, could even endeavor <laughs> to, yeah. to do that sort of thing. Absolutely. So yeah, I, I really appreciate that you come from that view because like you said, it is so different than the, the narrative that we're used to from those big four platforms and how they talk about AI. And, and again, you know, the, the depiction of, of general AI in, in uh, media uh, that seems to sort of confuse the, the public discourse about it. Yeah. Here's a great example, right? <clears throat> if you were to list maybe the top three, um, major uh, AI achievements in the last couple of years. Right? Yeah, most people would say Watson beating, um, winning Jeopardy. Right, right. They'd probably say AlphaGo, right, be, uh, winning Go, and they'd probably bring up the amazing, amazing things we've done with convolutional neural nets for image detection. So maybe okay, yeah, Microsoft's 150 layer deep neural network. Right? They'd yeah. probably bring up those three examples. The reality is, is that those the algorithms that went into those things, <laughs> no joke, were formalized. In the 60s, 70s, and early 80s. Right. Yeah. 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 It's it's hard to it's hard to probably pinpoint the origins of AI. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we we've canonized a lot of um, these these ideas about what yeah. it means um, even before we had computers. Right. We we have uh, cartoon strips going back into the 19th century that talks about. You know, uh, metal beasts and uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Thomas. Alan Turing was obsessed with the idea yeah. of, of creating synthetic intelligence. Um, I think it's been inappropriately placed on a hype cycle. AI is mm -hmm. not really on a hype cycle. AI certainly has its ebbs and flows of uh, value and research. Yeah. 
um, but it's growing at a at a rate um, that's been pretty consistent for the last uh, eighty or so years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we've we've you know we've we've definitely we've definitely gotten obsessed with making old algorithms faster, and mm-hmm. that's kind of the the state of the art of today. That's really what people are putting a lot of energy into right now. But in terms of real cutting-edge research, uh, I actually think we've slowed down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, we've just gotten really good at the applications of, of the older approaches. So that's interesting. Uh, do, do you think that um, some of the hype is feeding into that slowdown? Uh, unequivocally. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a very, it took me several weeks to come up with the jump you just made. Yeah. Um, so I, I genuinely believe that the amazing applications of narrow AI are distracting us from making progress in AGI. Uh-huh. So for example, it is, uh, it is both more impactful and extreme, much more valuable for Apple to focus on expert systems on Siri that yeah. aren't, that are actually just a, a hodgepodge of narrow AI applications than to actually put research into um, major AGI applications uh-huh. and, and research. Um, so, you know, it's... So there's kind of a marketing ploy going on here where because they call it Siri and because they try to treat it like a person that you can just talk to, people are thinking that it's more like the, the AGIs that they see in, in popular media. But the truth of it is that it's just a narrow AI that takes voice commands. Is that fair to say? Yeah. So, um, and I, I, I guess I'm not quite, I'm not quite as cynical because okay. it's, <laughs> sorry. No, 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 that's fine. I'd be no. So cynical. no, no, no. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, you know, usually when academic research is contrived, it's a great moment to be cynical, but there's some really great implications of that. Okay. Right? Yeah. So, so let's, let's talk about Siri. So let's say, um, if you ever got a notification from Siri that says, uh, traffic is light. It's time for you to head home. Right. And you've never actually told it where home is. You've never actually told it you're at work. Well, what's actually going on in the background is it's tracking your behavior over a period of time and learning your behavioral patterns and, yeah. and then assigning semantic value to that mm-hmm. and then giving you something that would be valuable that you'd view as intelligent. Mm-hmm. Now, what's really going on in the background is that that engineer in Cupertino, right, has written an expert system that says, hey, over time, track where those nine to fives are and see yeah. if they go there on the weekends. And if not, that's probably the office. And then if they spend the most of their, most of their uh, hours from midnight to 2 a.m. in this location, that's probably home. Right. right? right. And around <laughs> 5 p.m., right? So they eat, right? You go yeah. through this whole logic yeah, chain. Yeah. That's exactly what's going on in the system. Yeah. And when the engineer finishes on the, hey, it's probably time for you to go home, they start going down the route of, hey, what music would you like to listen to next? I right. bet I can predict that. Right. Um, so, the the reason I'm the reason I'm not actually super cynical against Apple or, um, or certainly Microsoft, who I think is actually doing a fantastic job in the in the narrow band in the narrow AI space. I'm not cynical because that's ex- actually extremely valuable. Yeah. You know, in terms of the impact on my day every day, um, I rather be on time to all my meetings because I yeah. have an expert system that's designing Cupertino, than to have a um a partially completed agi that's going to debate with me the the notions of descartes i don't yeah you know that's okay <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's there's just, there's still a lot of good to be had without mm-hmm. without that and there's um uh but but yeah there's also dangers there and i want to bring that up because you kind of alluded just barely brushed on the fact that you know that coding is happening behind the scenes right and mm-hmm. it's stuff that we don't necessarily see it's what we call the you know it's it's black boxed as, as they say. So it's, it's uh, proprietary information. It's proprietary code that only Apple gets to really see all the pieces of, and it comes up with these solutions and, but they don't, you don't necessarily know how they came up with that solution. Uh, you don't know what data they're drawing from. You don't know, you know, you sign things away when you agree to use the phone, right? Terms and conditions. And so they get to collect that data and plug it into their algorithm so that they can know that you're doing that. So isn't there a kind of a danger there though, that there's a sort of lack of transparency in exactly how they're, they're using that data. Uh, doesn't that also kind of create issues when you are using for more critical things, uh, like making huge kinds of life or business decisions, or say if you were in a battlefield situation, right. And you didn't know where this was, you know, this information was coming from, or you're, um, you know, a rigger on a, on a, on an oil rig, 
and uh, and you're getting information from a from a, an AI saying you need to go fix X, Y, and Z. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't know where that's coming from, isn't there sort of like a, a danger that you're sort of just blindly following based on on what it it, it spit out? Um, <clears throat> so there are certainly domains that I think we're never going to escape the human the loop narrow intelligence. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is this is particularly true for military applications. Uh, some of the most advanced techniques in machine learning, particularly in deep learning, are not uh, transparent when it comes to the factors that contributed to a decision that's made. Right? It's a, quite a bit of a black box. And so <clears throat> from an ethical standpoint, major decisions that maybe impact the lives of soldiers or the lives of civilians mm-hmm. or other collateral damage um, within an operation cannot be automated. Right. can't automate that through deep learning because we have no way of attributing why that decision was made. Mm-hmm. Now, there are other applications, more minute and targeted, where we're actually more okay with it. Right. right. So object detection within images, which is one of, the, one of the things that deep learning is actually proficient in. It's actually not proficient in that many things, but that's one of them. Um, <laughs> uh, the ob- uh, detecting objects within images is one thing that we've actually had some um, comfort with allowing it to do without having to have uh, hand inspection every single uh detection they could just let it go without being watched all the time basically yeah absolutely and we and actually has that happens a lot um so uh sorry i don't want to get too far away from your initial question uh, yeah we'll we'll definitely come back to that issue yeah because they're both they're definitely both important um i i think the real the real threat uh to progress in narrow ai particularly are the second order inferences that can be made against the data. That's a mathy, nerdy way of saying, I'm, I am more concerned about what somebody with, um, uh, with a domain data set can do with somebody else's domain data set uh, and the observations they can make. Here's an example. Yeah, yeah, please. Uh, Fitbit, um, Fitbit may be HIPAA compliant now, I don't know. I don't track okay. <laughs> data governance as much as I yeah, have. And, and uh, HIPAA is is the law that sets the norms for how health health information can be transferred and who can have it and and where it's private and where it's it's not. Precisely. Yeah. Yep. It's governance and regulations for all patient data. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I don't think. I I don't think Fitbit was ever mandated to go to HIPAA. But if I'm not mistaken, they have gone to a. HIPAA on their own volition, HIPAA mm-hmm. compliance. Yeah. At its core, I don't think the number of steps I take should be covered by HIPAA protection. Now, maybe that's a generational thing. We can leave it leave it at that. But let's just say for argument's sake that that's really not something that needs to be ultra-protected and, and, uh, and controlled. But let's say, I'm, let's say I have a small list of people who have diabetes and people who don't have diabetes. Right. And now I also have their Fitbit data. Right. There's a pretty good chance. In fact, I believe this research has been done. There's a pretty good chance I can predict whether or not you're pre-diabetic based off the cadence of your steps. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a really powerful ability. Yeah. That definitely needs to be. It opens up a whole can of worms right there. Right. Just um, in terms of the ethics of it, of who should be able to use it, of how they might use it if we didn't have limitations on it, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. That's exactly right. Yeah. Uh, and and really, how do you regulate that? Mm-hmm. Right, that's not a black or white issue. And <laughs> no. if, if we had to regulate everybody, and who... con- context is super important, context and intent, right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, it might be one thing if you're just trying to ensure that the, this person is is getting the you know right kind of treatment that they need. But then there's obviously we're familiar in in the United States with how the the healthcare system works and how it's looking for any opportunity to you know, capitalize on a, on a, uh, issue where they have medicine and that someone needs and, mm-hmm. you know, they can hike up prices or, you know, charge more for insurance or what have you. Right. So there are, there are ethical implications in there based on, uh, societal norms based on, um, you know, just, uh, capitalist frameworks, right. Things, things like that can, can, uh, determine over time, like what, how this information can and should be used in, a, in an ethical way, right? I think so. Um, I think so. I think it's also going to be impossible for us to interdict on anything that has a first order or second order uh, inference that can be made. 
So uh, can you break down what that means just for people yeah. who are not familiar with those terms? Absolutely. So back to the Fitbit example. Yeah. If we have to regulate Fitbit data based off of anything we could potentially infer from that with any simple um, machine learning approach, uh, we're going to get into a spot where everybody's regulated extremely tightly. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that's what people are asking for. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if people knew that Fitbit could tell them if they're pre-diabetic, if they'd be allergic to that. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you, um, I track my movement all the time. And if something told me that I was pre-diabetic, I'd be extremely grateful. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Right. So in terms of in terms of how do we counter it and how do ethics get enforced, I actually don't think this is a state. There's, there's a st- state solution to this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think actually the only thing, um, and this is controversial in Austin, I'm for sure, but, um, well, here we go. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those things that free market can really do an effective job of guiding. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. You think the free market can handle that? I believe so. I mean, it, if people, if informed, if informed buyers and consumers are, are capable of understanding the implications of their data, what's being exposed and how it could potentially be utilized, which is, um, already pretty, it sounds required. like a big if though, right? It's, uh, well, so it's already expressed usually in the features that are available to those individuals. What I mean by that is if, if Fitbit has actually put the effort into determining whether or not I'm pre-diabetic, it's not really something they're going to sit on. That's something that's going to wait, make its way into the product and its offering. Okay. In fact, people are incentivized to give us as much uh, insight into our own data as possible. So I I think many of us have, have heard examples of Facebook algorithms predicting people being pregnant right that mm-hmm. based on certain things that they're posting or things that they've been looking at on other sites they they can kind of determine that someone is likely pregnant and um what happened is this this woman was uh getting all these ad- targeted ads based on the assumption that she was pregnant but she had a, a miscarriage mm-hmm. and um they never figured out that, that she had a miscarriage and so they kept sending her information mm-hmm. uh about her baby, right? And so every time she got more stuff, it was like another like re-traumatizing of, of her situation, right? Because that's already traumatic enough that she loses a child and, you know, it, during the process of, of, of gestation, but to be reminded of it, you know, over and over through these ads is, it has a, you know, an opposite unintended effect. So I hear what you're saying, right? That obviously we go into these things with good intentions and we're, we're trying to make certain things happen, but there's always this sort of like, um, some range of, of options that are kind of unforeseen and, and mm-hmm. just, you know, that, that whole, that whole a- ancient saying of, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? It, it just, it just happens, right? Sure. It's just part of, of human nature. We, we have blind spots and we don't, we don't really know, what's going to happen. And then someone, you know, exploits it or doesn't know about it, or it's just sort of in the dark. And then we're, we're, you know, we're in a bad situation. There are certain things that the free market is not incentivized to think about, right? They're incentivized to keep, you know, people like on in Facebook, they're inspired to keep they're they're um, rewarded for keeping people on the platform longer and, uh, you know, targeting ads to them, or at least that's We'll see how that changes, but, um, but at a certain point we're finding like maybe, maybe like to this point, but not there. Right. And I, I don't know when I think about regulation, that's kind of what I think of is like at some, some point we figure out, okay, well to keep things humane, we don't, we don't want them crossing certain lines, you know, something like, you know, like what's happening with GDPR right now in in Europe, right. Where they are finding that, um, a certain level of access to, consumer data is just sort of generally not good and that can be, you know, repurposed for, uh, for, for bad reasons. Uh, so lots of things to unpack. Yeah. yeah. So with the exception of monopolistic firms, and I would argue that Facebook's on the precipice of becoming the monopolistic, you know, the monopoly within that space. Um, I think the free market is the only thing that can, well, people are disincentivized from using Facebook when the features aren't aligned with what they're looking for. So if you mislabel yeah. enough pregnancies as, or miss enough miscarriages as pregnancies, uh, then eventually people move away from your platform. Right. So 
so yes, in a monop in an environment where all things that we interact with are guided by a singular monopoly, it's problematic. Okay. But in domains where there are multiplicity of options, uh, free market enables us to incentivizes those companies to optimize their algorithms so they're not prescribing a pregnancy, a miscarriage as a pregnancy. Um, the challenge that we have with deep GDPR is that it's, uh, it is stifling innovation. Mm -hmm. um, now, there are some good reasons to have a tool like that in, in place, um, governance reasons. The majority of what we do as scientists is unveil the interesting correlations that guide our experience in one domain into another. That's, right. that's basically the, the cool stuff we do all the time. Yeah. And that's really only available when we have complete perspectives on those domains. Mm -hmm. When you silo, silo those domains and you isolate them and you close them off, you actually create an environment that makes it extremely difficult to innovate. Yeah. Right. There's always that balance of, of protecting what you've created or protecting what you're studying in this case. And, um, actually having the the room to innovate mm -hmm. right it's it's always a precarious balance but i hear what you're saying and it sounds like it sounds like um it, it, correct me if i'm wrong but my what i'm hearing is is that you think that the free market is will will work on this so far so long as that there are no monopolies so maybe would you would you say that maybe busting monopolies is is a key way to regulate this uh yeah, I'm always in favor of that. <laughs> What's that? I'm always in favor okay. of that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that that's some common ground we can have there. We sure. Start, start there. Sure. Okay. Now, I, look, there are there are very few, mm -hmm. if any, real innovations that we've had in the last two centuries across any domain that haven't been sparked because of our natural conflict with our fellow man, mm -hmm. form of military developments and such. Or our aspiration to build um, um, more, uh, improve on the state of, of being for, for your average individual. Yeah. And those are both things that absolutely require open markets. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating topic on that, that yeah. front. Um, we'll see what GDPR and the Californians are trying to implement something that's similar. Yeah. Um, I don't think that's going to contribute to their already waning uh, innovation in Silicon Valley is drying up really quickly. Yeah. We were just talking about how, right, GDPR, it, it's regulating data. It's, it's filtering out, you know, what data is permissible for companies to use and, and, and which aren't. And, uh, again, GDPR for those who are listening, if last year you might've remembered getting tons and tons of emails saying, Oh, our privacy policy has been updated. Well, that's, that was because of, um, this, general data protection uh, regulation in that got passed in the EU and every single site on the internet had to change their privacy policy if they wanted to be allowed uh, to reach customers and or our viewers of their content in the EU. So, um, so that's why they sent all that. And um, the reason that's so valuable is right because everyone from Facebook on down is using that data in one way or another to uh, either sell you something or gather some sort of information broadly about what how people are behaving online and how people are uh, thinking or what they're what they're interested in, so that they could ultimately create new products to to meet those needs. One of the issues in that is so when you're getting a bunch of data from any kind of source, there are going to be um, certain biases in that data. And uh, when those, if those biases go unchecked and then they go into machine learning algorithms, then we have a problem of these, um, these biases being embedded in these large scale calculations that are happening. And then that get ex extended off to infinity and, and then you have lost track of reality at some point in those calculations. Um, so bias is obviously a really big thing to look out for um, in this data. So I was wondering if you could speak to that a little bit uh, sure. <clears throat> uh, so one of my favorite quotes from a from a statistician is, um, "All models are wrong, but some of them are useful." Yeah. Uh, and I, I I think <laughs> the the challenge of a bias is that we are perpetually assigning semantic context to things that don't inherently have it, and when with that assignment is 
inherently prejudiced in one way or another. Sem- semantic context meaning? Sure. So no matter what data we look at, the value we assign to to those data um, are is inexorably tied to our perspective, right? We can't separate those things. Right. Um, we either have an agenda from um, the designer of the science, the, the scientist, the designer, uh, the engineer who's implementing that data, right? Or those data. Um, the I, idea that everyone has some sort of inherent bias that's kind of inescapable. I well, yes, and I I think even the perfectly designed system still has a bias. Right. If an AGI was po- so, if an AGI was was tenable and it walked into this studio, mm-hmm. um, they would have their own preconceived notions and biases and subjective, um, subjective opinions and their own unique altruisms. Um, that is the nature of intelligence. The in- yeah. intelligence maybe if we could distill it, and I fully. Re- you know, maintain the rights to, to change to, this to later. Change this later. <laughs> yeah. Um, but maybe all intelligence is, is assigning context to innocuous information. Okay. It's possible. Right. And so in a sense, correct me if I'm wrong, you're trying to make the, the connection between context and bias that it's in order to, to have some sort of context, you also need to have some sort of bias because you need a position from which to expound a certain view or, mm-hmm. or, set expound a certain set of values say sure so let's take my shoe for example yeah if we were to describe my shoe um there are it is inescapable for you to authentically describe my shoe without Mm -hmm. introducing biases from what you've experienced in the past right so like let's say i look at it and i say oh it's blue well that means i'm i'm battling the visual aspect of it but that's because I can see. So, like, maybe someone who was visually impaired might go and touch it first and say, oh, it's it's soft, or, oh, it's got a nice rubber sole on it, and say that first. And so just even the fact that, uh, you know, one thing was valued over another means that there's an inherent bias within it, even if it's fairly benign, right? That's right. So, so right. So I'd, I'd say my shoe is um, Valkyrie Blue. Yeah. <laughs> right. I'd love to claim that. Little plug. Yeah. 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 All birds, thanks for making a special Valkyrie edition of, of your of your shoe. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Shameless. Um, but so th- there's no term I could use to describe my shoe. Yeah. Where I'm taking, where I'm not taking something that is completely uh, innocuous and assigning some kind of contextual value. Yeah. Um, and if we can't even do that with a shoe. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Right. So... So it's so it's so okay. it's more about it's more about determining like which ones are valuable or or useful and which are not. That's right, and I think okay. the litmus test needs to be less of how do we remove biases, which we've which we have had the we've had that agenda for mm-hmm. a long time, long long time. Of course, yeah. Um, but I think it should be the litmus test should be we accept there are biases that we cannot help but introduce. Yeah. But are those biases contributing in a positive way? Or a negative way. I really love the way that you're 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 framing that. We understand we have biases. We we embrace them. Yeah. And the deeper we can go in understanding those biases, I think the better off our algorithms always are. Yeah. At Valkyrie, we switch people off of programs with some regularity. Swap mm-hmm. them. Swap a senior scientist for another senior scientist, so that um, we can switch it up. A, keep yeah. a check on those biases. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, frankly, uh, I've got um, I've got the coolest group of people I get to work with. Uh, yeah. on the planet um we've got some amazing talent that came out of the woodwork the right time the right place the right city mm-hmm. um and uh, i'm ultra grateful for that super cool people nice um but yeah. so so um kind of coming out of that right is the um the, there's a value on diversity i would assume uh and I, I talked about this with another guest of mine who was very focused on diversity but um, there are these uh, machine learning algorithms that they're selling to uh, to police departments across the across the the country that are meant to f- spot patterns in um, crime data, right? So they're mm-hmm. taking they're taking on um, data sets that are from decades and decades of crime data that they've collected, but inherent in that crime data is. Uh, some institutionally racist policies, right? So um, if 
we have all this data that has this sort of in, bias inherent in it in the numbers that came up right in this, the way that crime skewed towards one particular neighborhood with one particular you know uh, occupied by one particular um uh, uh ethnicity or race then um if you just look at that data and you don't acknowledge the bias it looks like oh well that's a part of town where all the criminals hang out right and then and then you have a problem because you kind of run into these cycles where, okay, well, if that's where all the criminals hang out, we'll send more patrol cars there. And if you send more patrol cars there, you'll get more arrests. And then the numbers will stay up. And then the cycle kind of runs round and round. But if you have someone else coming in there and saying, oh, well, we need to kind of like make some sort of adjustment to this because we understand that this was racist and this is not the kind of society that we're trying to create, then you have a different way of, of attacking this problem and a different kind of solution. Does that make sense? Um, <clears throat> it does. And I think the challenge we have is that at its core, um, there's a, there's a, there's a conflation between correlation and causation. Yeah. It's really dangerous. So, um, using that example, the solution may not be to change the policing practices. The solution may be to, to give real opportunity to individuals when they're at a younger age, right? Make sure, sure. That they have the support they need, better education systems, figuring out ways of incentivizing different socioeconomic structures so that the state of affairs as they progress in that mm -hmm. area um, are, are, uh, are different. So you're saying it may be that, that um, they're reading the, in, the data in a, in a way that doesn't quite make sense for what the data is actually saying or what the court or what what correlations are actually coming up that they're seeing these correlations and they're assuming that there's a causation that because that there because there is cr regular crime in these areas it means we need to go and just enforce more but a, a better interpretation might be no this is where we need to to target all the after school programs or job training programs or etc to alleviate the, the the stresses that lead to crime yeah, and I think I'm I'm also okay with it's kind of, with it being kind of a mix of both. Yeah. Right. Um, but if I look at um, if I look at the average person who's been arrested four times and mm -hmm. they just got arrested on their fifth, my reaction is is probably not. Um, my my reaction is probably more geared towards focusing on how we could have helped them at a younger age. Yeah. Uh, how we could have created uh, more. Um, nurturing and conducive environment for them um, as opposed to necessarily uh, targeting the reactive. Right. Rather than starting to label them and say, this is a lost cause and this is some sort of, you know, let's just throw them in the slammer forever. Like, well, let's, let's look at where maybe we as a society failed them or, or where we could have intervened in a different way and, and learn from that to create a better society rather than just sort of perpetuating the same cycles, right? Right, or necessarily taking out our dissatisfaction with the condition on law enforcement. I'm right. Not, I don't, I, I, I think law enforcement is largely a reactive system, right? Right, yeah. So if it is a causal, if there is a, if there is a causal linkage mm -hmm. as opposed to a correlative linkage, then that, then police are largely the last, peg of that chain yeah there were decisions that were made a long time ago mm -hmm. where we could have done something that would have been um that that could have helped right yeah i think i think you actually brought up a great one education is a is a major factor is one of the one of the, my 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 passions right yeah um i think um semi-skilled labor and trade schools yeah diminishing that in the country has been one of the worst things that could possibly have happened yeah um and for for you know talented young um, uh, impoverished folks at their, you know, 16th, 17th birthday did not have the option to go and, and train to become a mechanic or a plumber, electrician jobs that, you know, on the whole pay just as well. Yeah. <laughs> as yeah. Like, even a lot of attorneys, right? The distribution right. for attorney income is not what you'd expect. It's actually pretty fascinating. Um, so for them to not have that option for us to diminish that in favor of pressing everybody towards a four-year liberal arts degree that doesn't necessarily have material value once you graduate. Mm -hmm. That's actually really destructive. Hmm. So, the, so sorry, we're digressing into this the state of affairs for um, the American condition. But, but my my core 
The scientist in me is dissatisfied with looking at the last step as a way of correcting the entirety of the chain. Okay, yeah, that's a great way to look at it. I, I appreciate that, that perspective there. Yeah. All right. Um, so you mentioned education mm -hmm. uh, a little bit about your, your thoughts on um, not not being so happy as a, as a scientist with the way that education has gone that you kind of wish that there was a little bit more of like a uh, emphasis on trade schools and developing other kinds of skills and not just having the option of the four-year liberal arts degree so let's get into that because sure. because when ai is is more um widespread the whole game will change in terms of you know what kind of education you need to be a viable income maker yeah. say in 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 the world that emerges so um what are your thoughts on that? Like, is it the sort of thing where we need more kinds of trade schools or like what do we devalue liberal arts degrees? Where do you, where do you stand on that? Uh, sure. I think people break down in a couple of ways. You value communities or societies or the individual uh, or some sort of, or, or some sort of tribe, right? Mm -hmm. People usually break down on that in that spectrum. Um, one thing I've learned about myself is I'm a staunch supporter of the individual mm -hmm. and the individual draws value from having a sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. um, we've done a great disservice, I think, to a large swath of our population by removing the mechanisms that enable them to, to serve purpose, to have a mm -hmm. real sense of purpose. Purpose and meaning and yeah. Yeah. So can, careers are great ways of fulfilling that. Families are great ways of fulfilling that. Um, and, and probably in the reverse order. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, so when I think about the way it was in the fifties, uh -huh. uh, where we had people who sure went and got uh, liberal arts degrees and went into engineering and, and history and English and science and all sorts of different interesting fields. There was also a, a big contingent that went into, into um, skilled labor training people mm -hmm. became mechanics and plumbers and electricians and, um, and all sorts of different uh, trade schools went through all sorts of different trade schools to yeah. become, uh, to basically have the ability to live a very fulfilling life. Sure. Right? To have a sense of purpose and to contribute. Um, now artificial intelligence and its narrow applications is going to really disrupt a lot of roles, a lot of positions. But I think that <clears throat> we have a lot of incentive to figure out how your average human can adapt to those new roles. And I think, you know, we talked about it a little bit in the break. I think you're right. I think artificial intelligence can greatly enhance the job of a welder, the job of a plumber who maybe wear, you know, Google glasses to identify where a pipe is leaking and they can see through walls with thermal optics and all sorts right, of yeah. fancy technology that all integrates together and helps expedite the intellectual work that they need to do in that role. Okay. I also think we need to work to not be quite as dismissive to people who don't make it to Harvard, don't make it to Georgetown, don't make it to Penn, um, and, and can't, um, and can't complete those programs. I actually, I actually strongly believe that the artificial age of intelligence um, is one through which the overwhelming majority of people can participate. They just can't participate in it in the way they've been participating in the last digital age. And here's an example. Yeah. Uh, people are all worried about what's going to happen to semi-truck drivers in the next couple of years, right? That's a big one, yeah. It's a huge one. I actually am not super worried about them, okay. to be honest, um, for a couple of reasons. One, I think regulation is going to keep autonomous driving out in the distance for a while, as, as is the actual technology itself. We recently purchased a car with, um, you know, autopilot, and uh, is that the Tesla? No, it's a it's a Volvo. We're in we're in uh, we're oh yeah, very... Volvo just released like a concept car with that doesn't even have a a steering wheel on mm -hmm. it. Yeah, they're pretty they're pretty good um, yeah. about integrating that technology. Yeah, we're we're in uh, family grow mode, and so we're gotcha. Yeah. Um, we're excited. So we have, of course you have to get the the the, the Volvo, um, <laughs> <laughs> but the self driving on the Volvo has, yeah. leaves a lot to be desired. Uh -huh. it, it has a long way to go as does Tesla's for, for that matter. Yeah. Volvo's not behind. Tesla's still has a long ways to go. Yeah. Long, long, long ways to go. I'm not super worried about semi-truck drivers because I think that there are systems that will be enabled shortly where they'll be allowed to drive long distances on, on big chunks of the, 
of the country through big chunks of the country um, on autopilot. So you don't think it's going to be overnight that like suddenly a ton of a ton of them just don't have a job? That'll no. be a gradual thing, and that we'll be able to shift in time to twenty four tons of material, twenty five tons of material moving at seventy miles an hour. There's going to be a human involved in some way or another for quite a while. Yeah. But that said, it doesn't mean that the driver doesn't have his time free up. And who uh-huh. knows? The driver could do. Um, there's there's no there's nothing that prevents a driver from retraining as for a secondary role that they could take on while in the driver's seat. Uh-huh. Right. If you're going to be on a stretch for twelve hours with nothing really to to do or to look at, and the machine's driving itself, well, you could have a full shift of uh, uh, tech support. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. I, I don't know. I'm being sure. I'm, yeah. I'm being a little flippant, but there are other roles that you could take on in that position. The the roles I'm most worried about, though, that truly concerned about, are those that are locked in offloading that they basically offload tedious work for ultra skilled labor those would be you know physician um, uh, hospital administrators mm-hmm. um, paralegals uh, individuals who are who have trained to basically offload the monotonous tedious work that's yeah. done by lawyers and doctors and and, and uh, right and those those are some of the the sort of like white collar um, jobs that we don't necessarily hear about as much that that are in danger yeah totally and that's so two things on that one um take a look at like a tool like rocket lawyer uh Uh all digital you know generates um, the overwhelming majority of the documents that you would need in a blink of an eye makes it very simple um and it could easily threaten the work of a paralegal right uh it Ironically, it actually can increase the bill rate for the attorneys themselves. So it creates a bigger divide within a particular domain. Yeah. But the thing that actually troubles me the most is that roles like hospital administrators um, or paralegals are kind of the ju- the stepping stone positions as American families um, progress to upper echelons of uh, right. the class structure. Right. right? So if you remove those, right, yeah, what um, what takes its place, and, right, and how do you maintain social mobility? Mm-hmm. And it's my my contention that the overwhelming majority of roles in the future um, will 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 fall into one of two categories: uh, either um, intellectually challenging work that can absolutely include plumbers and electricians that are not exercised from that group. Yeah, a different a different kind of um, of intelligence that goes. That's into right. That. Yeah, not not necessarily the kind. That goes into, say, astrophysics, but it's it's still a, a valuable form of intelligence. One of my favorite movie quotes is, you know, uh, man uh, from uh, the you know, Matthew McConaughey from Interstellar asks, uh-huh. you know, the principal of his kid's school, you know, was it inseam whiz and you know, what are the dimensions of his pants? Uh-huh. And he gives him two numbers and he says, okay, well, so you're telling me you takes two numbers to measure your butt, but only one number to measure an intelligence, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, look, man, you know, we can't define intelligence. The, yeah. the last great yeah. mystery that we have on the, in the universe, we, would, we understand way more about the inner workings of the deep universe than we do about what's going on between our two ears. Yeah. We can't even get consensus on right. simple techniques. So I think the jobs, back to the point, is that they'll be separated into really two different categories. Yeah. There will be... Uh, those who use their intelligence and are freed from tedium uh, and are able to be truly creative, powered by AI, yeah. and those who are developing the machine learning techniques to enable all that. And that's really going to be the... So doctors okay. will be a consumer. Uh, they'll be producers and consumers, but it's all along the dimension of artificial intelligence, if that makes more sense. So doctors, lawyers, plumbers, electricians, um, even even some scientists, consumers of AI, yeah, generators of AI will be nerds like me. <laughs> um, probably the big four will stay in the business. Okay. Or at least two of the big four will stay in the business for a while. Um, and then there are going to be a, a legion of digital uh, creators. So, you know, our, my, you know, career alma mater, Frog Design, it's got a brilliant future in front of it of designing around the complex, uh, the complex uh, interactions models that are needed, the nuances of our interaction models that are yeah. needed in order to uh, truly capitalize on the capability. So there'll be a lot more opportunity for creative uh, work. I exactly. So and this is fun. It's great you say this because I'm because yeah. I often ponder whether creativity is one of the most um, is one of the clearest ways to define intelligence. 
Interesting. So when I when we say AI is going to um is going to transform the universe, well, what it's really going to do is through, through narrow applications, chip away at the tedium part tedious parts of our lives, allowing you to be more creative. Yeah. So you're waste every day. You waste a ton of cycles doing things that right, aren't creative yeah. and aren't intelligent. Yeah. So we can we can um. When when we're not doing the grunt work day to day, we can we can develop our um, the, the skills that we need to to enhance our creativity and to come up with like a, a lot of great ideas and, and and new applications and new new functions for how we how we operate and how we how we live. Absolutely. So. Uh, so like if we if like you know within like the next ten years, ten to twenty years, right? If we are continue to offload this kind of um uh brain power onto the ais so that they can take care of the tedious stuff then what that would do is create more leisure time and um you know maybe maybe what we'd be learning is more of how to use that to wield that creativity in, in whatever form it comes through whether you know any any of those different many different kinds of intelligences and creativities that exist and um almost take a, a different route in terms of where we're focusing in our evolution as a species. Uh, <clears throat> yes. Sorry, I'm getting no, a little heady no, there, but, is, is, but, but I've, I've, I've heard, a, I've heard this theme in the last couple of guests that we've had, right? Cause there's a lot of, there's a lot of hope put into, you know, the, the, the potentials for humans to evolve along with AI and evolve is used kind of in that artistic way. Uh, yes. I, I would see it less as an evolution and more of an unshackling. Interesting. Right? We're taking off the parking brake. So um, I'm, I consider myself ultra blessed and uh -huh. that um, not many people, not many people outside of academia get to have as much time spent on intellectual pursuits as I do. I'm super, super blessed, fortunate, lucky, but you know, there are, there are days for all of us where we spend a lot of an inordinate amount of time driving an inordinate amount of time consuming content. That's not, perfectly stimulating for for who we are and you know, we, we we watched you know marathons of netflix but right. i bet you if we had a, something that was perfectly catered to something we were deeply interested in that would challenge us intellectually and it was perfectly matched for that we'd watch that over the fourth round of you know mm. binge watching rest of development in yeah. a heartbeat um we so maybe we're just at the sort of because we're at the beginnings of this and we're still kind of stuck in the in the framework of the tedium mm -hmm. uh, that we're we're not necessarily using the AI to its full potential. We're not necessarily using these algorithms to maximize our own potential yet. Yeah, and it, mm -hmm. I hate to sound cliche, but maybe this is a good uh, bow on the chat. Um, it goes back to Star Trek. How much larger? <laughs> uh -huh, how much longer uh -huh. would an episode of Star Trek be without the AI automation of their whole? process right you know, yeah you're you know coming to captain picard's office and he says <laughs> uh, would you like something to drink you know he says he tells the machine i want you know you know what i want you know spit it out the earl gray hot right <laughs> um and it comes out immediately but you imagine if he's like hold on a second let me put a pot on the water uh -huh. let me go get it to boil i'm gonna yeah. go find that <laughs> you know, right it's like, <laughs> it's like if you look at their lifestyle like all right. those people do is talk about intellectually stimulating things. Right. And it's because the AI isn't doing actually intelligent things at all. That, uh -huh. is, that is not intelligent. Yeah. They're removing all the things that aren't intelligent that we waste our intelligent tools. So on. it's almost it's almost backwards when we project onto the, the AI that it's gonna do all the the smart things. And in fact it it in the way that you're framing this, it looks it looks more like we're better served to think of it doing all the kind of lesser things so that we can do the higher things that it can't do. It's exactly right. Yeah, it is. It is. You know, it's a, it's maybe we haven't ever put a, such a fine a point as we are today on it um, at Valkyrie, but it is the ultimate tool for unlocking human potential. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> at least I hope so. For, for all the issues that I have, you know, with it, like I, I, I I'm still inspired by that, that vision of it. And sure. And it kind of makes sense when you when you think of it in that way. And um, so, yeah. Did you any any final thoughts before we wrap up here? Um, I like to 
whenever I get a chance to speak publicly and yeah. do two things. One, thank you so much for having us out I'm here. So, so glad to have you. <laughs> this has been fantastic. Super fun. Um, and the other thing is that it's ultra important to our team that we call out um, how talented women are in our field. So I very much appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so important. You know, we've got uh, a number of extremely talented women scientists mm-hmm. um, who've done just tremendous work. And, um, you know, I've got two sisters who are data scientists. My mom's a scientist, uh, uh, poly, political scientist, but still you know, yeah, yeah. scientist for, the, for, for sure. Um, and, uh, and I think that, you know, if, if we can do anything outside of build our own domain, it's, it's champion a, a real transformation of the way the tech industry views gender. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll be totally frank. It has, uh, we didn't particularly have an agenda, right. To create a, um, to create this, this kind of great harmonious culture at Valkyrie. It came out because we didn't have an agenda. We didn't have a bias about the merits of a male scientist over a female scientist. Yeah. We saw it really objectively. And so we hired the right people for the job. And, um, we, we had a, a really strong female component of our team and, uh, I'm ultra proud of that. I, I just think that's the coolest thing to come out of, uh, one of the coolest things to come out of our culture. So. That's wonderful. Thanks for that. And uh, with that, we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. Thank you. Uh, really glad to have you. This has been a fantastic conversation. Oh, we appreciate it. Thanks and, very much. Uh, yeah, hope to see you again sometime. Thanks. Absolutely. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us on this trip through the shadow of the valley. If you'd like to learn more about Valkyrie intelligence, please visit valkyrie.ai. Our theme music was generously provided by Bly, spelled B-I-E-L-E. You can find her on SoundCloud and at https colon slash slash s-a-r-a-h-b-l-y dot com Additional music was provided by Michael Garfield host of the Future Fossils podcast You can also find him on Patreon and Bandcamp That'll do it for this episode If you like this podcast please subscribe and leave a review Share it with any friends or family you may think will enjoy these interviews I've been your host, Tal Leeds, saying, keep going.